0: Welcome to Fintech Insider News, your weekly go-to podcast for all things fintech and financial services. We've been downloaded in more than 150 countries and are at the top of the charts in iTunes. In fact, David seems to have spent half the week tweeting exactly where we are in the podcast charts from various countries he's travelled to. (laughs) You really need to get a better hobby, dude. So we're recording live from Level 39 in London, the heart of fintech. I'm Jason Bates and I'm joined by my 11FS colleagues, David Breer and Simon Taylor. Say hi guys.
1: Hello. Hello.
0: And for those who don't know, 11FS is a global consulting firm that specializes in helping banks become truly digital. From workshops and speaking to digital projects to building banks. If you need us, get in touch. Joining us for today's analysis of the news, and I use analysis in the loosest sense. (laughs) Christopher Banisk, uh, Blockchain Products Lead at ARK Invest. Hey. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. And Ben Robinson, Chief Strategy and Marketing Officer at Temenos. Hey, Ben. Hey. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. So, on with the news. So, the first story of this week is a story from Thin Extra about the European Banking Authority Uh, and it's uh, a a recent speech in which they proposed to relax the rules on a requirement for strong customer authentication for all payments under 10 euros around PSD2. Has anyone got a, a, a view on this, David? I think it's a, a really interesting one.
2: I don't like to start seeing any relaxation really around where PSD2 could go and, and actually what it could mean because that starts to leave holes in terms of uh, wiggle room for the banks to try and get out of this one like we've seen them do in many other regulations in this space. So
1: interesting but worrying signs are worrying say. trend but actually in this case it's kind of sensible right so you can make a contractless transaction for up to 30 pounds 30 euros but actually if it was going to be psd2 it would have to be 10 euros 10 pounds so that makes absolutely
3: no sense that you would have that that disparity there with anything in security there's a trade-off between security and um customer experience and you know the idea that you just buy something for 15 euros and have to do a second Factor authentication does seem a bit excessive. So I agree with you that nobody wants to see PSD2 watered down. But at the same time, I think this is probably the right concession. No, it's so a good
1: point, Ben. I think that um, watering down is worrying. But like, what is that payment experience going to look like in PSD2? So I'm paying directly out of my bank account instead of using a card all of a sudden. So what does that authentication look like? What does that experience look like? Am I in an app? Am I in a retail store? Where am I doing it? Like these things are still so new that we just don't know how it's going to look.
0: But I think you're you're right in the the trade-off between security and in the end that that user experience. I think the that Andrea Enria, who's the EBA chairman, who spoke about these proposed standards, the, the Regulatory Technical Standards, the RTS, who said that they've had over 224 responses in the first four consultation papers on the issue. The EBA identified 300 distinct concerns and clarification requests. So it just shows you the the number of market participants from retailers who are looking to sell more and don't want those baskets left or, or transactions abandoned you know, online, uh, all the way through to the banks who hold liability and third parties and the regulators. It's such a complex area and there's still so much to sort out in between now and quarter one 2018. Yeah, it seems to me like this is the challenge with um, doing innovation through regulation,
1: because the regulation comes out and goes, it should sort to of do this. And if sort of do this means make payments available through APIs. And it sort of says, and you should protect it this way, and you should manage it that way. But actually, everybody's got a whole bunch of detailed questions about their individual markets, about customer protections, about liability, about management of data. And of course, the regulation doesn't say anything about how you should do that. It just says that you should do that. So this is the problem. It's almost backwards. We're going to push you into doing this thing with a regulation, but you guys are going to figure out how.
4: You know it reminds me of the simple story of if you're trying to build a path and you build a path a certain way and you expect a bunch of people to walk that way but they actually end up trotting a different path. So exactly as you're saying I feel like a lot of times when regulators try and come in and say things should be done a certain way but in the real world people actually end up trotting a different path that's where we we find ourselves in trouble.
3: And I think the other thing with PST 2 which is um, I think we all still underestimate the magnitude of what the regulator is asking banks to do here, right? which is basically to put their inventory online. And no other industry does that, right? Even if you think, even if I make a hotel reservation through booking.com, you know, ultimately booking.com still has to send the reservation to the, to the hotel. You know, the hotel can choose whether they're available on, through booking.com or not. And what PST 2 is saying is that banks must be, must put their services online they must be online addressable it's huge I mean it's as big as what the smartphone did for the taxi industry it's really massive and I'm not surprised that so many people are raising difficult questions about that because it is such a, a massive regulatory standard.
2: I, I yeah, completely agree. I, th- I think the thing here though is, is that banks are providing a service, aren't they? They're not, they're, I think the banks have for too long have actually been in a position where they do feel that they are selling a product, that it isn't about the management or the service of that product. And actually the, the standards around that, if you go back to why they're doing this, you know, the, uh, the original PSD, my data in the UK in terms of all of the stuff that kind of came through from there. It's about the increase in competition around for the customer in terms of the services, not just the products. So I think if you kind of ask the the original people of the the intent of this, it was just to make the uh, the competition around the front end better, and I, I really love your analogy about the you know people find the least path of resistance, as it were. Mm-hmm. But in this instance, it's not really about banks trying to tread a new uh, a new short path. It's actually that they don't want to go at all. You know, like the their mentality is easier because we you know we've talked about this a number of times before on on the show. But you know APIs and open APIs is is actually a lack of control really mm-hmm. for the for the banks in this space. So you know, arguably most of the banks and you know most of them that are. You know, saying the right things I think in the in the market would still prefer this just to go away mm-hmm. so and I think with all the other There's regulations that we've seen that, David,
1: though, I mean there are some who see an opportunity here um, I would say in some of the bigger ones um, there it's not everybody saying this is the end of the world I would say overwhelmingly would most banks that I've come across prefer if this wasn't here Probably Um, But at the same time, Jason's fond of saying market forces. I think uh, it's not just market forces. I think it's opportunity as well. Like there is upside and opportunity in APIs.
2: The ones who are really sort of moving forward on this are looking at the opportunities cast by other banks having to expose APIs rather
0: than necessarily just their exposure for themselves. Looking at the software vendors and the, the people who are putting these systems in place. I mean, Ben at Temenos, you must be looking at how to implement software and implement your core banking systems against standards that haven't even been created yet how does that
3: work so I, w- I would agree that like most conversations we have most banks see this as a compliance headache and very few banks yet see this as a big opportunity but there is um there is certainly a minority and a growing number of banks that see this as an opportunity I guess the analogy is it's like asking Google to give up its metadata, right? You're asking banks to give up its tra- their transactional data, and you can see why they really wouldn't want to. But since it is now in statute and it's coming, um, I think we're starting to see banks, want, you know, really scrutinise this and wonder how they can how they can profit from it. And so more and more we see you know banks thinking about how they can introduce an aggregator model, how they can aggregate financial services from other providers, fintechs, non. You know, non-banks, non-insurance, um, etc. W- one of the things I think is interesting is like, um, since this is a European standard, if European banks take the lead on this, where does this leave them vis-a-vis uh, banks in Asia or, or the US? You know, I think this might be uh, something that forges a competitive advantage for European banks if they really embrace open banking.
0: Well, interesting point. On to story two. Brits warm to mobile
3: tap and pay. It's interesting because it took a long time, didn't it, for Apple Pay to take off. And but now, I mean, you know, growth figures like that. I mean, it seems like it's really starting to to um, to be some sort of tipping point. And I just think with anything in financial services, the initial adoption rates are always going to be slower because I think there's always inertia around trying new things when money is concerned. But I, I think I, I certainly think that's very interesting. And I think maybe we'll come back to this in a second. But when when I think about sort of mobile payments. Um, I was thinking about some of the downstream implications of those, you know like its because clearly, if you're using Apple pay, you have a much uh, you have a more distant relationship with the underlying card provider, hmm. you know and I think that for example, massively um, increases the intensity of the battle to be that default card in Apple pay, the default card in Uber. And so on. Like, if you, if, I don't know if any of you have changed your credit card providers, but it's amazing how many places you've entered that credit mm. card. You have to go in and change all the hotel reservation sites, Uber, and it really means that your, your credit card becomes quite sticky if you are that default provider.
1: Uh, it's worse than that for me, Ben. I've reached the point where um, I now know the pan and expiry and CVV <laughs> off by heart, and changing that is, is a real pain because I can no longer type it in. Chris, you wanted to say
4: something? Yeah, I, I think you nailed it, Ben, with this idea of a bit of lag Uh, to the behavioral change because so I live in Manhattan right and there's only a few stores where I regularly can go to and know okay they're gonna accept Apple Pay and I've now gotten into the habit pattern of okay I'm gonna pay with Apple Pay there and if I'm just going to that store I can leave my wallet at home but with most other stores you know I still have to carry both but I think over time we're gonna see increased momentum to this as people's minds are primed to pay digitally I'm still not
0: I'm still not convinced from a customer proposition perspective that that the current generation of mobile-enabled payments is a good solution Mm. compared to carrying a small piece of inert plastic that always works and is always on. I'm carrying a much bigger device that runs out of power on occasion and could leave me completely stranded which means that I need to carry a backup piece anyway, which means why not use that in the end?
4: I agree that the piece of plastic often proves its utility in moments like when when your phone runs out of battery. But there are some great little perks, like if you lose that little plastic piece. If you have Apple Pay, you can actually regenerate your card much more quickly than them sending it to you, right? Or I'm traveling right now. I can, if every time I pay with Apple Pay, I don't have to worry about stuffing that receipt in my wallet and showing it to my provider, right? It's just in there. So I think over time there are perks in that digital trail and the instant uh, way in which you can renew that that payment device.
2: It, it's interesting. It's it sort of it's worse in the payment experience, but it's better in the surrounding areas in terms of the the stuff that makes up a payment. Mm-hmm. But I think uh, to your point, Jason, I think the the experience kind of needs to be enriched beyond you know, particularly the spaces where, uh, you know, Londoners are being incentivized to use it for uh, underground, etc. cetera, then it is actually a worse experience than the experience that you would have today, really. Or look at Amazon stores,
4: right? The, the new stores coming up, the kind of thing where you don't even have to go and tap, it just recognizes you, it can cross-correlate where you are, and voila, the payment is made.
1: And so I spoke to Dave Birch, who had some very similar ideas to you, Chris, on, on exactly that. I'm here with Dave Birch, the Director of Innovation at Consult Hyperion. Dave, good to have you back on a Fintech Insiders. Thanks for inviting me back. Well, well, there's a great story this week that we've seen about Brits warming to mobile tap and pay and a couple of interesting stats in there about yeah. growth of 247% of people using mobile phones at the point of sale to make transactions. As Brits, are we warming to mobile payments or is this just a, you know, a growth from a small base? What, what's really going on?
5: Well, I mean, if I wanted to look at the sort of overall trends, I'd want to look at four figures, really. So I want to know what proportion of card transactions are boring old chip and pin. What proportion are contactless EMV, which is what they're talking about here? uh, What proportion are mobile app running on the card rails? So Uber, Starbucks, that kind of thing. And then what, what proportion are, you know, completely new and different, you know, Alipay or whatever. So there's sort of four areas, I think, that we need to look at to try and see the overall trend. And I think all this figure tells us, because my suspicion, which, by the way, is quite well founded, is that mobile tap and pay remains still a very small proportion of overall contactless use. Is that it's grown fast from a very small number, but to be honest, I think it's still actually quite a small number.
1: The total amount of transactions we've seen uh, is 38 million, which I think um, you're, you're more familiar with the the ballpark figures. Um, you know, and against a 288 million pound spend, where you know you'd see all retail transactions in the UK being you know maybe uh, half a, half a trillion or something, you know in the 500 billion mark. So this does seem. Very very small, but they are talking about people using a mobile app or Apple Pay or um, Android Pay at a point of sale specifically. So it seems like a reasonable amount given given that that's what's the case. It's but you know is this a, a just growth from a small base? I think is is what you were kind of driving to there as, as being. A-
5: I think if we're trying to sort of work out where that's going, I mean, if you if you bear in mind there were probably, but I think to- you're right. Total card spending in the UK last year was six hundred billion or something like that around about 15 billion purchases something like that so 288 million out of 600 billion is statistically zero i mean you know if you round it off on the spreadsheet it's still naught so that so the interesting strategic question is if you look at those segments what's going to grow fastest because i bet right now what's growing fastest is the in app stuff because people seem very happy paying with Uber and Starbucks and all these sort of things, where where the, you know, it's like if you've got the mobile phone in your hand and the mobile phone is connected to the internet and the merchant is connected to the internet as well, why, why would you have this kind of technological boat anchor of messing around with bits of tapping and terminals and those other kind of you know things that remind us of of the past, so it seems to me that the key figure is what's the growth of tap and pay um compared to the growth of app and pay and then of course, I'm also curious to know what the what the outlier is, so what's the other stuff the stuff that's not happening on the conventional card rails, whether in app or not so so there we're looking towards what's going to start going on with zap and ping it and things like that what's going on with alipay and wechat because you know we're moving into this pst2 world the instant payments world the push payments world and i just wonder i mean i don't want to be too gloomy or anything because i love this stuff uh, but i wonder if we if we spent so long messing around with the tap and pay stuff that actually it's it's going to be overtaken by events
1: Dave Birch, um, thank you for joining us on Fintech Insider News. You're more than welcome, Simon. Cheers.
0: So thanks, Dave, which I guess leads us nicely on to the third story, one where I guess in the UK we've seen great adoption from contactless payments through the transport system. Uh, David, I think there's something happening in Singapore.
2: Yeah, I, I guess the you know the reason this one's uh, interesting is again it's kind of intent more than uh, really the detail in the uh, the article because actually this is a, a piece on Finextra which is pretty low on content but I'd say arguably in the UK a big push and a you know a big sort of catalyst for the. The innovations that we're sort of seeing today, and arguably into the, the fintech space in terms of what we've we've seen and flourish in the in the UK as well, was was really down to the underground payment services being implemented in the first place. You know, we've got uh, an entire um, kind of ecosystem of commuters who are used to using contactless payments. Therefore, you know, mobile tap and go, or you know, new advancements around that in terms of going, it was really just a forerunner uh, in terms of what we've seen. So, you know, Oyster in the UK, I think. This move in, in Singapore, albeit they're all quite technologically advanced there anyway,
1: I think will be a good thing of getting mainstream adoption of, of this type of technology. You can say it worked, I think, for the UK with uh, Transport for London and Contactless. I think it's um, worked in is it Hong Kong that's done similar things. There are a lot of markets where, you know, sort of a, a city state, which London sort of is, is able to achieve that. And Singapore would
0: fit that bill perfectly. Okay, so moving on to the cryptocurrency blockchain section. JP Morgan, Intel, Microsoft join Ethereum blockchain alliance. Does, Simon, does that mean that my small Ethereum holding is now going to skyrocket? It
1: well, is
4: skyrocketing. Uh, I was, was going to
0: say, we happen to have somebody in the room who's far
1: better qualified to answer that question than I will ever be. So Chris, I mean, it might be worth exploring a little bit about you know, what Ethereum is. Just a quick recap mm-hmm. on what is Ethereum, both the currency and the technology side. And then sort of why an alliance of corporates around an open source technology and a cryptocurrency that's supposed to be about decentralized Decentralizing everything isn't that stupid. Like, so what is Ethereum? First up,
4: absolutely. If you if you take Bitcoin as your context, right? Bitcoin was a decentralized currency, and it uh, employed a distributed ledger in order to keep track of the debits and credits of that native currency. What Ethereum has done is it's a decentralized world computer, and instead of people transacting money with one another, it becomes programs. Transacting information. Uh, because right now, me talking right now is a transaction of sorts, right? And so, using Ethereum, what you can do is you can create programs that actually live on Ethereum's blockchain and you can trigger them with transactions that send information to that program. This is the idea of smart contracts, terrible word, uh, much better referred to as conditional transactions. And so, there is this giant greenfield territory of what you can do with that kind of system. So that's the difference between Ethereum and Bitcoin.
1: That's huge. And then so why would something that's about you know, decentralization at its core be interesting to these big companies, especially like a JP Morgan and Intel and Microsoft? Like what 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 do they stand to gain from, from this sort of thing?
4: Well, I think they are trying not to lose <laughs> uh, in, in, in some ways. But with this enterprise Ethereum alliance, what you have going on is the core Ethereum implementation is very similar to Bitcoin in that it is this public network and anyone can become a computer on that network getting access to the information. Now, as you all know better than I know, that's not gonna fly for the banks, right? They need permissioned or private environments so that there's a bouncer at the door checking ID if you want to join the network. At the same time, they see the utility of Ethereum, and they see the activity of the developers around that that community. And so what the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance is doing is it's basically maintaining a parallel code base. So you have Ethereum Core, we could call it, for the public, and then you have Ethereum Enterprise. And the thinking is that over time, having this alliance will keep the two code bases interoperable, so that in time, if you want to have let's say, a distributed application run on both, or a bank actually wants to have their implementation shifted over to the public chain, the chains will be interoperable. They won't fork off uh, into the distance.
0: So whenever I I read about Ethereum or see it in the news, there always seems to be exclamation marks in the headline (laughs) uh, because someone's lost millions, there's some bug, it's split and suddenly become two currencies. Is cryptocurrency really still the Wild West? And how long do you think it will take for it to become... A mainstream technology that, mm-hmm. that banks and everyone else will start to employ
4: a little context here right so packet switching was created in 1960 and that's really what underlies the internet public key cryptography was created in 1977 so about 17 years later you think the tech and telecom boom was around 2000 well it's now 2017 about the 17-year delay right so i would say we're actually even earlier than the tech and telecom boom when you think of cryptocurrency. It depends on which which system you're looking at. Some are very much the Wild West, others like Bitcoin and Ethereum are maturing rapidly. I have uh, segmented the space to to better define things and I've been calling these permissionless blockchains uh, and the, the native assets within them, blockchain assets. And within those blockchain assets, you have cryptocurrencies, uh, things like Bitcoin, serves as a means of exchange, store of value, unit of account. Then you have crypto commodities, things like Ethereum and Ether, storage SIA, which are actually distributed digital commodities. Just like we have wheat, oil, natural gas, etc. we now have markets for these digital commodities. And then the third vertical is crypto tokens, which is more abstract and we don't have to go there now, but you have this entire new decentralized economy that's being born in front of us.
3: Chris, I was actually just going to ask you a question, which is um, yep. something, something you were talking about there, where you said um, that you like with Ethereum you could have you know a permissioned uh, ledger which then writes to the public ledger. You know, I don't know every day or whatever. Mm-hmm. It seems quite an interesting theory, quite an interesting idea to get around uh, some of the privacy aspects of mm-hmm. having a completely public chain. Could could you also do that to get around the problems of um, delays with trading? I mean, could you create a sort of you know a ledger or a group, you know, um, some sort of consortium where people trade? really quickly and then it just writes the public ledger again once a day or once every hour.
4: It's, it's fascinating. You intuitively uh, found your way towards one of the primary innovations going on with both Bitcoin and Ethereum. Um, this basic idea within Ethereum, it's called state channels. Within Bitcoin, it's called the Lightning Network, which is where you basically open up a channel with, with a counterparty and you can have really fast transactions, basically routing through that network. But then if there's a dispute, you drop to the core blockchain as the dispute uh, resolution center, basically the court. So there are solutions for that, where, you know, off-chain, you have this really fast transaction capacity, and then you drop to on-chain for the security and validation.
1: And what's interesting to me about this is it's now become a proper three-horse race. We had R3 in that consortium, we had Hyperledger in that consortium, you know, which was kind of very enterprise-focused, certainly the, the Hyperledger one was. And and the Hyperledger and Corda codebases have matured, but they're kind of coming from old world of financial services moving towards decentralized. Whereas on the in the open source space, you're moving from fully decentralized, moving towards smaller ideas of centralization or state channels to to try and solve some of these practical applications. And you give that a couple more years and it'll be very interesting to see how this kind of stuff develops and you know now the fact that these open source forums and these alliances especially the ethereum one does have some corporate backing it means that they're not just relying on the price of the cryptocurrency to see if the open source project continues to develop there are actually large corporates saying we believe this technology is going to be so valuable we're going to put money and people into developing this this core code base which means the code ain't going away and if your business model is entirely centralized you got to think about that. I put together a um, blog post on 11FS called 11 Things Your CIO (laughs) Needs to Know About Blockchain Today. So if you head over to 11FS.co.uk, you can find out more about that. And uh, we actually had a question on that blog post. Um, Somebody was talking about, you know, if you're a large corporate, what are the legal implications of, you know, kind of working with some of these technologies? And I spoke to Sean Murphy, who's a partner at Norton Rose Fulbright, uh, a little bit about that. Excellent, so I'm here with Sean Murphy, who is a partner at Norton Rose Fulbright. Sean, say hello. Hi, Simon, hello. So thank you, Sean, for being with us. What are the legal issues that your clients are most concerned about in relation to distributed ledger technology?
6: Okay, Um, so I think the first thing to say is that we get asked a pretty broad range of, uh, of, of questions about both law and regulation. Um, And just just to give you a flavour, those those questions can range from topics like um, IP and data privacy through to dispute resolution and the enforceability of smart contracts um, and into um, issues regarding financial services regulation and things like settlement finality. Now, obviously, not all of those issues are going to be relevant for um, every use case, so it really does vary. The, the, the questions that with the legal and regulatory questions that will be um, relevant to any particular use case will, will vary on a case by case basis.
1: That's really kind of the, the challenge, I suppose. Um, but are you seeing anything specific around sort of data protection as an inhibitor for potential deployment of DLT? And, and what are your thoughts?
6: Yeah. So, I mean, Data protection comes up a lot. Um, clearly, in identity use cases, it, it comes up with great frequency. It's one of the um, the key issues that you need to think about, but it also comes up more generally uh, with with other use cases of DLT. I, I tend to um, sort of divide the issue into two. On the one hand, you've got a practical question and a practical concern, uh, which is to do with the um, the security of data. How secure? is my data uh, on, on the blockchain or the ledger or um, in connection with the blockchain or the ledger? And that's really a practical question, um, which uh, demands um, a technological uh, or, or business response to it. So I, I won't um, talk about that. But the, the other um, sort of aspect of this question is particularly where personal data is being uh, stored on a blockchain or a distributed ledger, How can you comply? You know, what are the the applicable um, data privacy requirements and and how can you comply uh, with them? And just to give you um, a sense of the kind of requirements that we might be talking about, and again, it varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, but they are things like, do uh, data subjects need to be notified about how their data is going to be used? Uh, There might be uh, requirements regarding the accuracy of data, There might be requirements regarding the duration that data uh, can be stored for, Um, and there can also be restrictions on the transfer of data outside a particular jurisdiction or or, or geographic area. So potentially, lots of um, different issues to think about. Uh, Data privacy um, regulation should not be uh, an insurmountable obstacle to many, if not most, uh, use cases. But the key thing for anyone who is sort of concerned that their use case uh, may, may face um, or data privacy regulations may be applicable to it is to think about those issues at an early stage and factor them into the structure and development of the, um, the the solution that you're building.
1: That's fantastic, Sean. And one last thing before I let you go: uh, there's a lot of talk about smart contracts, and contracts and law seem very close together as subjects. What kind of questions are your clients asking most about smart contracts?
6: Well, I think the questions that the question, the single question that comes up the most frequently is to do with the um, whether smart contracts are binding and whether they're enforceable. We um, conducted a multi-jurisdictional survey uh, together with R3 at the end of last year looking at that question. that We, we surveyed the law uh, in eight different jurisdictions and it won't come as any surprise that the, um, the the answer to the question of is a smart contract binding and enforceable varies from model to model and also varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. I think it's fair to say that Those models of smart contract that attempt to uh, entirely codify a contract and completely do with natural language contracts are going to, um, are much more challenging from a uh, legal uh, perspective when it comes to questions of are they binding and are they legally enforceable. Whereas those models of smart contract that sit at the other end of the spectrum and the, the code sits alongside a natural language contract and automates the performance of aspects of that contract, those kind, those models of smart contracts are, are much easier to fit within the existing um, legal framework Uh, And there's, I think, a higher degree of likelihood that those contracts would be uh, binding and enforceable, which is not to say, though, uh, that it wouldn't be possible to have a fully codified contract that was binding and enforceable, but a lot more analysis would need to be carried out.
1: Sean, uh, excellent summary. Thank you so much for being with us on FinTech Insider.
6: My pleasure.
0: So thanks, Sean. And now we'll throw to the sponsors.
7: Critical Mass, that's what turns the smallest ventures into life-changing forces. Reach Critical Mass by joining Temenos Open Marketplace for FinTechs, opening up access to 2,000 of the world's largest financial institutions. Don't just take our word for it. Temenos Marketplace has just won Reader's Choice Best Emerging Innovative Technology Product and Service at the 2016 Banking Technology Awards. Join Temenos now. We make the money go round. To be honest,
6: most digital banking experiences just aren't that amazing. Learn how more than 180 banks worldwide, including Barclays, Deutsche Bank, and BBVA, innovate faster with Strands as their trusted fintech partner. To find out more, visit strands.com today.
0: So thanks again to our sponsors. So moving on to the next story, top bank executives required to vouch for cyber attack defences. There was an interesting article in the FT. There was an interesting article in the FT this week uh, suggesting that the world's biggest banks and insurers will have to meet New York regulators' tough new rules. Uh, Top executives from some of the world's largest banks will have to vouch for their company's resilience to cyber attacks. So will they be putting their houses or their liberty on the line? Uh, What do people think? This is remarkably prescriptive from the NYDFS.
1: It's sort of you have to certify every year that you've notified of uh, any serious breaches within 72 hours of discovery and a a whole bunch of other stuff. But from a cybersecurity standpoint, you want to be a lot more reactive than proactive. The idea that you can have a, a playbook that you just roll out every time you get some attack That's not the nature of cybersecurity, it's changing and it's evolving every day. What you need to be able to show is that you are open and honest about it and that you can deal with it. And that's as much about uh, changing rule sets and changing landscapes as it is about anything prescriptive about what you're supposed to do.
4: I'm all for holding people accountable, but this seems, exactly as Simon was saying, a bit too stringent. I, as an executive, would never put myself on the line this way because these systems are so complex. And hackers have advanced so much that it's basically Swiss cheese. There's uh, the famous quote, I think, from someone from the CIA or FBI, um, basically saying there are two kinds of companies, Uh, those who have been hacked those who haven't been hacked. It's those that have been hacked and those that know they've been hacked, right? Wait, yep. but they've all been hacked. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. yeah. <laughs> However, that quote goes. So um, that basic idea, you know, coming at it as an executive, knowing that these systems are like Swiss cheese, having regulation like this puts people on the line. I,
2: I completely agree with that. I think this yeah. is an arms race that the banks are, are not really equipped to to win, and it's a it's very interesting that given everything that's gone on over recent years in the banking system that this is the one that the New York regulators particularly coming out to get executives to to vouch for you know it kind of feels like there's a bunch of other things that they should be probably uh, you know ahead of this vouching for in terms of liquidity and whatnot in terms of where they're going so you know I think there's a it's an interesting one but it it feels like the ramifications of what happens if they said they were and they're not uh, are probably missing from this really.
3: I mean you can understand why this has come about? Because they really want to concentrate minds on what is, you know, a threat that's growing exponentially, right? Because, you know, we talked about PST two earlier, and one of the things that people don't talk about much about PST two is that by putting everything online and by opening up to a whole bunch of new intermediaries, we massively increase the scope for cyber crime. So you can see why they want to concentrate minds. But I agree with what you're saying, which is, you know, this is a liability that I would not want yeah. to take on myself. But the other thing is that this is not the first time they've tried this. So I don't know if you remember that. I don't know if it was ever implemented or not, but they, they certainly tabled this idea that executives were going to be held accountable for the systems. And again, you know what's happened since? Okay, so we've had some system change, but still 80% of banks run you know spaghetti legacy systems. Yeah. So it wasn't like it really concentrated the minds and led to you know a huge step change in, in system replacement.
1: It creates a
3: paper filling exercise yeah. for people.
1: Rules like this mean that they'll hire a bunch of um, auditors to make sure that they've filled in the paperwork the right way. I think that's the thing. If I was a cybersecurity expert living in New York right now, I'd be
2: rubbing my hands together because this is basically a a mandate from the New York regulator that you're going to get a better
1: day rate than you're getting right now. (laughs) Yeah. And here's a giant distraction from what you should be doing, which is protecting your systems. And why don't you just go fill in a bunch of forms instead of protecting your systems to make us happy?
4: Well, you know, the cybersecurity stocks have been crushed. so. I mean, following your logic, I'm an investment manager, so I can't say what to do, but anyway. (laughs) You can tell me afterwards.
0: Okay, well, from traditional banking or traditional bankers and systems through to even an older type of banking. Simon, you've been talking to Yielders this week. What's what's special about Yielders? Yeah, I spoke to Irfan at Yielders.
1: They are the first UK Sharia-compliant fintech company, and they're based here at level 39. Uh, You know, kind of in the last 10 years, the need for ethical banking has been phenomenal. And I spoke to Irfan, who is the founder at uh, Yielders, and he told me a little bit about what that means for their customers. Fantastic. So I'm joined by Irfan Khan from Yielders today. And Yielders is the first fintech company in the UK to have independent certification under Sharia governance.
8: Uh, Can you tell us a little bit more about this, please? Yeah, absolutely. So um, well, the journey actually started about 15 months ago. We engaged with um, a firm called UK IFC, so UK Islamic Finance Council, and they do a number of assurance works. Um, across the UK. So they came in and they've been part of this entire process to come in and do an initial review um, of our processes. And then what they've also done is given us access to some sheikhs. So then we then selected a prominent sheikh known as Abu Isa who then came in and reviewed everything. So they reviewed everything from the business practices, the processes, the legal documents, the contracts, how we perform as a business, um, shareholders' rights, the rights of shareholders post an investment as well, so how we treat them. So it's an entire Elts and Braces sort of approach and review of the whole um, the business. That's fantastic. And really what Sharia is, is really just about ethical finance. So a lot of people get hung up about the word about being uh, Sharia certified. All it is, is really an ethical business in practice.
1: And we need that in financial services, if you look at the last decade. And how do you provide those assurances? Like what would um, being uh, kind of Sharia certified really bring to your
8: organization? And what do you have to do to achieve that that kind of standard? So, I mean, the journey's been long and it's been difficult. But really, there's, there's just a few core principles around it. And so obviously being ethical is one, the transparency of information um, and data. So, and it's about sharing of risk and reward. So you're not supposed to take and provide undue risk to investors without there being um, the necessary reward. And you're supposed to have balance between transactions as well. So, for example, one of the ways that we do this is we translate our fee structure into creating reward and profit for an investor rather than front-loading fees um, and waiting to see if a performance of an investment goes up or down and then it has an impact on the investor, we actually earn most of our fee income if there's a profit generated for the investor. That makes a
1: lot of sense. I mean, a lot of the conversations we have at 11FS as a consultancy with banks is there are a lot of community banks now that are thinking, what are their roles in the 21st century? And actually, the ideas you're talking about are pretty pretty leading edge. Like, I haven't really heard of anything like that. That's pretty innovative from a financial services perspective. Erfan, thank you so much for joining us on Fintech Insider News today.
8: Welcome.
0: So, thanks to Erfan. On to the next story, and this one's from The Register. Telco Orange to open bank next month. David.
2: Yeah, I, I, lo- I love this one. And A, I don't read enough stuff on the register because just their tone of voice is awesome. So they said, MWC, Frenchy Telco Orange, is re- <laughs> reinventing itself as a bank next month, which I got a chuckle out of nothing else. But yeah, this is super interesting. Some really quite bold statements coming out of uh, their head of group strategy at Orange saying that they're going to be launching a bank in the next few weeks, which will be very disruptive in the French market. And it's quite exciting now to be an incumbent, but feel like a newcomer.
3: Yeah, I agree with this. this. is very interesting because more and more people seem to want to become banks, which is in a way um, slightly counterintuitive. But what's interesting is, I guess, as more and more of our financial lives take place on on the mobile phone, telcos are in the value chain, but you know by by default. Mm. And you can see why there's an appetite to move up the value chain to become uh, more and more involved. I think there's a quote. There's a quote in the article in where. Orange wants to be central to our digital lives or something like that. And I can see how um, there are some tools they have for you know, bundling and customer acquisition and and also some lock in, you know, so if, so if they make your continued banking life contingent on minutes or whatever, you can see how they've got some locking capabilities. But where I struggle is I just I really struggle to see the value proposition beyond that. Yeah, why, why, why
1: France? Like I see this in sub Saharan Africa, I see it in Southeast yeah. Asia, I see it in economies where bank branches are very, very hard and banking penetration is very, very low. But in a market where that's not the case, then you're really gonna to have to differentiate if you're gonna come into the market. You're gonna to have to bring something that's a little bit different to being a me too.
0: Well, you can, but you can look at London, Oh, you can look at the UK, and what four new digital banks in and are coming, coming up and around. You can look at Germany, and we know Solaris and the guys, and N26 in Berlin, it's kicking off there you know, what is there in France? You know, maybe it is a sort of open territory within Europe where actually you can still do this thing without it taking hold. Because remember, it's, it's obviously a different language, but very nationalistic, very, you know, French like to do business with the French. Right. And to be, to be able to create a bank and a proposition around that, probably, you know, gives you something. So there's definitely market space
1: there. The thing with telcos generally, though, is I remember 2010-11, um, every telco in, under the sun was going to launch a payments initiative, and they were going to do NFC, and they were going to get there first. And and generally, Mobile World Congress is the place where telcos go to show off what they're not going to do in five years' time. <laughs> and so this just feels like another one of those. Like, does anybody violently
3: disagree? Or no, yeah? So um, so M-Pesa, so the, uh, the M-Shwari, banking service. It actually, actually runs on Temenos, I'm quite familiar with that. And it seems like that one was a lot luck, right? Because, you know, Safaricom had such a large coverage in market Kenya, your market penetration, 70 plus percent of the population. So they had, so you had high penetration plus, as you said, you know, you had a problem where banking was too expensive and couldn't be distributed. So you had the perfect conditions to launch for a telco to launch a banking service. I don't see those same conditions in France. And I, When I read the article, it's almost like they're jumping on this open banking wave but why would Orange be better aggregator than Amazon or Apple or any other? Or, or, know, startup. I, yeah, I or to, a
2: startup. I think to startup or a yeah, digital so I think to Jason's point, though, I think don't underestimate the love that French people have for the Orange brand, and I, I think that that carries a kind of a huge amount in this space. That actually people are so loyal to that brand that actually the expansion out into additional services, I think, will be really, really interesting. I think the thing that I kind of take from this is they were actually trying to offset lackluster revenue by branching out into banking and that feels like to me like probably it's the wrong time to be coming into banking to kind of get that you know that big payday right. but one of the interesting quotes that uh, the director of data at telefonica was actually saying towards the end, end of this was they were looking at ways to monetize selling anonymized customer data to help its corporate customers as well which again is quite an interesting statement to do given the balancing out of that coming in being a trusted brand in terms of what you're what you're doing and how you how you going about doing it arguably that's where most banks are, are doing things today in terms of what where they're going for and arguably given what we're seeing with PSD2 and the kind of um, unwrapping of some of that data for people to do things. That's where monetization of those data streams are going to come from. But maybe being so blatant when you're sort of coming into it, that that's what you're going to do is is quite terrifying.
0: But there's something wonderfully ironic here for me. You've got Telefonica O2 launching something in Germany. You've got Orange launching something in France. These are telcos that go back a few years, suddenly lost uh, suddenly were commoditized. They became the back-end pipes to someone else's handset. And now they're entering an industry. And, you know, is this a, uh, we're back and we know how this plays out. You guys are all going to lose, yeah. suckers. So we're going we're
4: to jump on the front. Why does everyone want to be a bank? And w- when I'm thinking about what a bank used to be, it used to be a mechanism where they'd have to store a lot of physical cash and there's, Mm. you know, a special security means that is necessary for doing so. But in an increasingly digital world, going back to cybersecurity, right, you just have to have proper cybersecurity defenses and value is digitally based and maybe a telco is actually more adept at doing this than a traditional bank. It really tosses up this idea of who has the native edge in being a bank in a digital world.
0: That's super interesting, I think. But I'd almost wonder if if then a telco is a better bank back-end. You know, mm-hmm. They're adept at being pipes, at being mm-hmm. secure pipes. Well, hey, the, you've got a whole industry with PSD2 here that means you could be secure pipes not for someone's phone calls and text messages, but for their pounds moving mm-hmm. around a network. And hey, we know how to do networks as mm-hmm. well. So it's interesting from that perspective, Whereas O2 and uh, Telefonica and Orange seem to be pursuing that the front end, the customer piece, which arguably they have less of a of a call for.
4: In some ways, the, the front end is so sexy to these companies because of the data they get, right? And at Arc, we're constantly talking about these different industries and where does the data aggregate to. And the more you are at the front end, the more clarity you're getting on the data, and, and going to David's point, then you can go and sell that data and it's mm. a new business line. So I think that's where some of these battles are taking place is where can we become bigger sieves for these massive amounts of data.
0: And I totally agree. And we've gone to speak to a variety of you know, large retailers, telcos, you know banks, who, who definitely commit it from that perspective. How can we get something in the hands of the consumer so that we get the data? Mm-hmm. But that ultimately leads you down a path of, Let's just get something out. We're really focusing on the prize. We're focusing on all that lovely data I'll get (laughs) and be able to monetize. There's Uh, an evil laugh
2: in there somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Um,
0: And I kid you not, we've sat in a a boardroom and asked the people, you know, around the table, making these decisions, talking to us about building this thing. So why would a customer sign up? And they're like, uh... You know, uh, it really gets into difficult conversations because they're so focused on the the business outcome being so attractive that you almost forget that actually there are you know millions of customers out there who have to be persuaded to move from whatever they are now onto this new
4: thing. Something that I was thinking about when we were talking was you know what, especially in the data realm, who are the data monsters? Google, mm. Amazon, Apple, a few others, Netflix. And so I'm really curious to see what these guys do. We've had Google make some forays, we've had Apple make some forays, certainly Amazon as well, but in terms of being data monsters, those are the ones, and when you look at their machine learning teams and what they're doing on that front, it is light years ahead, I would argue, of what we see in the blockchain realm, in the, the financial realm, whatever it may be. And in some regards, those machine learning algorithms are pliable. So you can start to use them in, in different applications and so one thing I think about is with the financial companies while they are fighting over this data maybe they're missing uh, the forest for the trees while you know Google and Amazon are actually sweeping up far vaster amounts of, of data
2: completely agree with that I I think that's the that's the play you know it's the the people coming into the market with as much money to spend and arguably larger customer bases to do mm-hmm. things with um, I think probably apple's played its card to a certain degree I think they they decided it was maybe easier to make money from the incumbents than it was to try and make a market and do something else so you know if you look at a lot of the agreements that they've got into with the the banks it's making money from the transactions that mm-hmm they're doing through Apple Pay. Um, Google I think is probably a very different kettle of fish and to your point around what they can do with with that data, I guess it's whether the existing arrangements that they've got, because Google supports most of the, the banks on the planet in one form or another. Definitely it did when I was in a bank with uh, the amount of money that we we're spending through AdWords, et cetera. <laughs> so, you know, can you start to cannibalize some of your clients through maybe
3: forays into doing interesting
2: things? Exactly. Yeah. So it's always a always a difficult thing to do,
3: isn't it? I just pick up on two things you said, right? So first of all, I totally agree that this, I think the big threat to banks comes from aggregators, and that's why I, that's why I really struggle to believe that Orange could be a better aggregator than say Amazon, because or Netflix, or any of these guys who are really, really excellent on data analytics, and that's why I think it's really important the banks they play the trust card because the only reason you would not do all your banking through Amazon is because you have an inherently stronger sense of trust with your banks. But I
0: guess the banking stack or the traditional banking model has been one vertical against another, one vertical bank against another vertical bank. And now we're seeing this horizontal platformification. There's cloud-based companies, so Amazon can support multiple banks. There there are uh, cloud-based software providers who can provide core banking to a variety of banks. Then there are new brands. Uh, so So for me, almost you start to look at what's best to breed and how do these things fit together. And therefore how does my Barclays account uh, allow me to transact and I trust them to keep my money safe? Uh, connect to my Google intelligence because they organise the world's information and they help me to get from point A to point B geographically by telling me all of the various public transport options well now they can tell me how to get from point
3: A to point B financially with all of the various different financial options I would uh, disagree with one thing you said there which is um, so this is my my theory is that banking the, the banks that emerge successfully from this period of disruption and um, and the sort of Breaking up with the value chain, if, if if you will, right, will be those that actually remain vertically integrated, because I think you've got to um, you've got to control the distribution. If you stand any chance of upselling, cross-selling, et cetera, you've got to control distribution. I think you've got to control fulfilment in the way that you know Amazon started off selling books um when other people would hold the inventory and pretty soon it, it had its own warehouses and now it has a massive logistics network to be able to deliver really wonderful fulfillment and i think banks remaining vertically integrated allows for that but they have to be thin so they have to basically make a choice about which are really core services which are strategically important or which do they make make sense for them to provide because they require loads of capital like you, you you can imagine a startup a silicon valley startup wanting to to give a mortgage, right? Because it's 40 years of capital tied up with a really low return. is isn't very exciting. But all the rest, they should basically say, okay, we're opening those up, we'll cannibalize our own business and we remain vertically integrated, but thin. That's, that's my theory, so. Which leads me wonderfully onto my
0: <laughs> favorite vertically integrated focused bank, Monzo, Yes, uh, that's just raised 22 and a half million. So 19 and a half million through Thrive Capital, Passion Capital and Orange Digital Ventures, orange arises again and indeed I guess the story is less about the raise which is amazing and congratulations to the team there but more about the crowdfunding raise if you remember last year Monzo raised a million in a a record-breaking one minute and 36 seconds uh, breaking the equity crowdfunding record and this year I think they're probably going for a different record They've uh, announced that uh, if you go to monzo.com slash invest, I think, you can register for um, up to a thousand pounds of investment. So, uh, Simon, I think you spoke to Tom. I did indeed.
1: Hi, so I'm here with Tom Blomfeld, the CEO of Monzo. Tom, good to have you back on the show. Great to be here. Thank you so much for being here. I know it's been a very busy couple of weeks for you. A couple of things happened. First, uh, you raised a new round of funding, uh, a lot of exciting things there. And second, uh, in the last few days, you've uh, had an outage. Um, I wonder if uh, you can tell us about the rollercoaster that is running a startup, maybe starting with the fundraise and your ambitions for Monzo.
7: Yeah, sure. Um, so this is the fundraise that... Um helps us launch the bank account so as a as a regulated bank we have certain capital requirements and as sort of one of the final steps getting our restrictions lifted on license we've got to get a bunch of cash in so delighted to close last week uh, a 22 million pound round led by thrive capital in new york um with participation from passion you know a long-time supporter and orange digital ventures um who are the venture arm of the telcom the telco in in france we've also included two and a half million pounds of that 22 for crowdfunding so if you remember we did a, a round last year where we raised a million pounds in 96 seconds so we tried to learn some of the lessons there and we're doing it slightly differently this time but I'm very, very excited for that crowdfunding
6: yeah no
1: the crowdfunding seems huge i think the last time i looked um for every position where somebody could crowdfund you you've got three or four people waiting in the line uh, that must that must feel pretty good that people really want to be investors
7: i mean it's it's bittersweet Because it means that three out of four people who've pledged money won't get to invest. And so, you know, we tried to learn the lessons from last time where, again, selling out in 96 seconds means there are a lot of frustrated people. And so rather than do a, you know, take an hour off work at lunchtime and click furiously and try and crash Crowdcube, what instead we've done is a pre-registration period where you pledge an amount and then we'll just do a ballot. So it's hopefully a little less sort of frustrating in the sense you don't have to waste an hour of your time clicking but, you know, and it, it's an amazing testament to the strength of feeling that many of our supporters have, which we're just hugely, hugely grateful for that. But, you know, we're cognizant of the fact that at least three quarters of those people aren't going to get to
8: invest. So.
1: Absolutely. Um, So speaking about the strength of your supporters, I saw um, some interesting social media in the last sort of uh, day or so. Uh, Even though you guys had had an outage, it seemed like your customers were being very good about it. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about this card outage that you've been experiencing and and what's happening there and then, you know, kind of how that might be different uh, once you guys become a full-scale bank?
7: Yeah, for sure. So first of all, I just want to apologize. We were down uh, yesterday for I need to go and check the logs, but 12 or 14 hours, I think, without during which cars didn't work, which was a hugely, hugely frustrating experience for tens of thousands of our users. I mean, I myself got my Tesco purchase declined at the, at the till, which is just hugely embarrassing. And, you know, I, I, that was a minor inconvenience for me. And I realized a lot of people had much, much more severe inconveniences. So first of all, just apologies from myself and the team, many of whom were working uh, all of nice. Sunday and all of last night to try and get things back up and running. The, the root cause was an outage at our card processor. That is a third party uh, outsourcing provider that effectively sits between ourselves and the MasterCard network. And when they are down, uh, we just don't see any traffic from MasterCard. So we're unable to authorize or decline transactions from uh, on a card. And so from a customer's perspective, your card just doesn't work. But it's incredibly frustrating because it also meant that there was nothing in the short-term that we could have done to prevent it. I mean, clearly, we take responsibility for choosing our outsourced suppliers. And one of the steps that we we took several months ago was to decide that actually we wanted to bring that capability back in-house. It's something that's so core to maintaining reliability and stability that actually we believe that by building it in-house, we can we can offer a better experience to our customers. So I'm delighted to announce that just last week, we actually finalized the testing of our own MasterCard processor. So we're now directly connected into MasterCard and we'll be processing all card transactions on our own technology uh, for the current account. The prepaid card will still run on the same rails and that will be wound down over the next few months. But as a bank, we'll be running this card infrastructure on our own on our own systems, um, which just gives us a, a greater sense of, of,
1: of control, I guess. Tom, that's absolutely fantastic. Thanks for being with us once again on Fintech Insider News.
0: So what do we think about crowdfunding and equity crowdfunding and seeing it as a new model of delivering? Obviously, there's appetite in the, in the general public to get into this. We've seen Tandem and uh, Monzo do this, you know, a number of times now. Is this a new model?
4: Coming from the US, we've had the Jobs Act come through and that's opening up some of the opportunity for this. But also from the space that that I come from, the blockchain asset space, This trend is taking off really this idea of initial coin offerings, which is a terrible term because it involves the regulators quickly prefer to call it token launches. But right along the lines of crowdfunding, you are bootstrapping technologies and protocols from the ground up, distributing equity. Um, It really changes the value chain, right, of an investor. If I look at it from the perspective of ARK as, as a manager of ETFs and in the public markets, All of a sudden if we have different forms of raising capital that don't necessarily require the capital markets then we as an investment manager won't necessarily get access to those returns and specifically within the blockchain asset space some of these protocols are getting bootstrapped I mean Bitcoin Ethereum so on and so forth and then they're self-sustaining and it's actually the protocol that accrues the value and facilitates the application and then people build applications on top and those little applications which are companies make money but it's a it's a total inversion of what we saw with the internet companies
1: the pre-ipo space is radically changing there's definitely a need to democratize access to capital Uh, if you are a retail investor in other words us and you're not a professional investment management firm getting access to the growth stories of these companies is pretty much impossible maybe somebody's doing it with your pension on your behalf probably not they're probably just doing it all in really low risk stuff like um, government bonds and treasuries and so on so how do you get into the market because by the Time companies are IPOing these days. Snapchat just IPOed, Facebook mm-hmm. IPOed. Okay, so Facebook has done pretty well since its IPO, but like most of the growth they're gonna do. Yeah has already happened by the time they IPO. Uber. So you're not really going to get a m- multiple. Unless people find these new interesting ways of getting access to these instruments, then you know we find ourselves in a position where most of the economy, you know, the only the top 1% gets to invest. And I think trends like what Monzo are doing and, and many others are starting to live the values a little bit. Like, we want people to be a part of our journey, then why don't you invest in us? Um, it kind of reminds me of those stories
4: i'm i'm really excited by this trend for 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 the reasons you point out simon but i do think there's a point of caution and that is some of the systems that we have put into place are to protect the consumer Mm -hmm. and you know specifically coming from the blockchain asset space we were talking about it before the podcast began there are some scams there are some outright scams and if you're not careful as an investor and there's not the proper education and and safety mechanisms in place then some people are going to get burned so i think that um, I'm extremely excited about all of this It's just we also need to make sure to take care of the educational front and the regulatory
1: front. You're absolutely right about that. I think the downside of making sure we had to educate people was also meant that we locked out most people and only accredited investors could invest. Mm -hmm. And as a result, the 1% got richer and everybody else left out. Can we do the same thing we're trying to do where we're bringing wealth management down to retail in this investment space where you make it retail accessible? We've seen apps like Dabble and Robinhood trying to do that in the public market space but what about private markets? I think, and, and I think it's about you know using reputable platforms to do
2: these things. You know, CrowdCube in itself actually has quite a, a sophisticated level of questioning ahead of actually allowing people to in, to invest through the platform. Mm-hmm. Which for me, you know, it's not a full fact find by any means in terms of where it would be going, but it does make people very aware of what it should be doing. And arguably the way in which it asks those questions is is actually quite playful in the way that it's going about doing it. So I think there's probably A, get yourselves on there because it looks like these guys are sort of selling like hotcakes, but the other side of things is, is probably a lot of investment managers could learn a few things from CrowdKit.
0: I should give the uh, podcast caveat here that we aren't investment managers or financial advisors, and therefore cannot <laughs> recommend any. Uh, <laughs> Definitely, this is yeah. this is
4: not investment <laughs> advice uh, from my perspective, in particular. I think
0: um, uh, I was going to say I think that there's there's something interesting about going back to previous models, to the cooperative, to the you know the community bank, to a bank or a financial service a financial institution where people put their money in in order to, to do better together and While we've seen lots of new challenger banks and new sort of challenges I don't think we've seen a new co-op yet and that would be super interesting. I think to see uh, Just as you say like a, a coin offering mm-hmm. that actually is a is a financial institution that you could have your day-to-day Finances with
4: so we are seeing that um, in the again in the blockchain asset space. There's companies like um, economy and there's another company that's trying to pull together an index, a cubed root market cap weighted index of the top 100 blockchain assets. So you're seeing this idea, there's another one, um, Intellisys, from Charlie Shrem, early character in in the Bitcoin space. So you're seeing this idea of taking the investment manager and tokenizing it and issuing it on a blockchain so that then people can get access to it with the transparency and benefits of a blockchain. But again, Wild West. But, I, but
0: I'd love to see that jump into like, retail, into, into, tr- into, I was going to say, true currencies. And I was about to get flamed by <laughs> everyone in the <laughs> cryptocurrency space. But in currencies that I'd use every day, mm-hmm. you know, where is that? You know, The co-op is obviously in trouble. That's going to have some issues as to who's going to buy that, where that's going to go. But which challenges? It seems such a, uh, with crowdfunding, crowdsourcing, open source movement, it seems such an obvious play to, to bring that back in.
3: Uh, the, the comment I was going to make, so I, so I think the, um, uh, the crowdsourcing technique is, is interesting from the point of view of democratizing finance, which is great, no question. I think it's also really clever because you know the, one of the things that I observe more and more with, with uh, new entrants into banking is, first of all, the cost of acquisition is super high, and in a way you're already acquiring customers by getting to invest in the platform. And the second thing is, Partic- well, worse in insurance and in banking, but, you know, how do you build regular engagement with your customers in, in a banking setting? And I think it's, what's super clever is that if you build a community of people who are it, both investors and, and uh, consumers of the service, you know, co-creators, then I think that's a, a really clever way of overcoming that engagement barrier. So from one type of investment
0: advice to another, David, I think you're going to finish with probably one of the best final stories <laughs> we've had.
2: Well, we, we always like to leave with quite a, a fun one and I'll be honest with you that as a, a white guy growing up in the 90s it's clear that I listen to a lot of hip-hop right <laughs> uh, but this is a really interesting thing that uh, sort of came through on this is this is a rapper coming out whose main purpose is giving money-saving advice so this is rapper d1 who comes from is it Lat- Atlanta is it um, who seems to spend most of his time actually rapping about savings advice how people should go about not just making money, but actually ensuring that they're they're spending money, and and definitely I kind of don't feel that like I kind of got this vibe from all of the hip hop that I listened to during yeah, the nineties. Make money,
1: money, make money, money, save money, money. money.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it is, yeah. So, but it, so it's pretty refreshing in terms of doing it. But um, you know, some of the lyrics that come out of this guy was hilarious. So, I'd uh, highly recommend you to go and listen to the the, the particular song where he's talking about is ninety eight Honda that has three hundred thousand miles on the dash, which is just hilarious. <laughs> Um, so yeah, go check that one out. So Are it's, we going it's, to play a clip. Yeah, cool. Let's give it a go. Man,
9: somebody messaged me on Instagram saying they don't listen to my music because I don't drive a brand new fancy car like a real rebel. Man, I'm trying to be smart with my money. And actually, I'm in love with my car. Plus, I ain't got no cardinals. No. Yeah, go. I don't care what they drive, I don't mind how they roll. I don't want what they got. Cheap up, my car smoke more, than whiskey, up <laughs> People me in and saying, what the heck? How you still drive that after you got in the wreck? I ain't training it, and I ain't getting it fixed But I am keeping that insurance check yep. Me and my car done got close My car ain't been there for me Stuck by my side, when I had nothing I fell in love, now I can't leave Plus I got, no, no. I used all that extra money to take long
4: Hold you.
0: Awesome. So thanks to our guests this week. It's been great to have you.
4: Thanks very much. Thank you.
0: And thanks to the regular team. Hey, always a pleasure. Indeed. Well, I didn't want to leave you out. You yeah. don't thank each other enough.
1: Jason's yeah, no. so inclusive. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, grateful. I'm grateful
0: for you guys. And thank you, our listeners. Uh, if you've liked what you've heard, please subscribe on our podcast and leave us a review on iTunes. We'd also like to hear what you'd like to hear about. We're creating a whole series of roundtables. We're creating a whole series of, of new programmes. And we'd love to know what you'd like to know. So please leave us a comment, leave us a review on iTunes, and we'll talk to you soon. Oh, and just one more thing. We'll be at the Innovate Finance Global Summit in April. FinTech Insiders who want to join us can get 30% off tickets with the discount code FinTech Insider, what else? Thanks again, bye.